Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray as we stand. Almighty Father, as we come now to your word, we ask that you will um, uh, grant us to discover what Peter and the 12 discovered, or at least the 11, that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Father, we want to be a people who are able to say that, not just because we officially agree with something that's in the text. Um, We want that, but we also want to be able to say that, that Jesus has the words of eternal life because we found that to be true, Uh, that we have tasted and seen that Jesus is good, that he is more to be trusted than anyone else in this world, more to be trusted than any religious leader, more to be trusted than any philosophy, more to be trusted than our very own selves. Um, But as Jesus says, that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come now into us And give us a faith and a trust in Christ, which we cannot generate ourselves. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can have a seat. Uh, And please turn back to page 11, that um, story from the Gospel of John. Um, this is a absolutely a pivotal moment in the relationship between Jesus and his followers. So if you identify as one of the followers of Jesus, this is an important story for you and for me. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is an important story for you too, because this will show you uh, some of the dynamic that uh, Jesus is inviting you into. I know that that may sound very um, uh, bold, but well. I say it, um, Jesus is calling you into a relationship with himself, and this story opens up some of what that is all about, but it does so in a very interesting way, and here's why. In this reading, Jesus's followers slam up against Jesus's hard teachings. So if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, There will come times, and they will come often, when we will slam up against the reality of Jesus's hard teachings. There will be times where uh, Jesus and his teachings and Christianity and its doctrines just seem difficult to handle. And at different times, it will take on different forms. There will be times where Jesus's ethical commands just seem unrealistic. You know, be perfect. 
Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. There will be times where the doctrines of Christ, who Jesus claims to be, what he has accomplished, and what he asks of us who follow him, sometimes those uh, doctrines will be confusing and difficult, and doubt will rise up in your hearts. Sometimes the commands of Jesus will seem out of date. Sometimes you will realize that following Jesus will mean uh, setting aside some of the relationships that matter most. Sometimes following Jesus will require you to lay down dreams or ambitions or desires that are held very, very dear. It comes in different packages, but if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, one way or the other, we will slam up against Jesus's hard teachings. And when that happens, we will find ourselves asking, is the benefit of Christ worth the cost? Have you ever asked that question? And is there maybe a little way that I can negotiate? Well, our reading is one of the first times that that ever happened, except what's, one of the things that's interesting is it's not just an individual follower of Jesus that's slamming up against his hard teachings. It's a whole group. And not only is it a whole group of people, it is the entire movement of Jesus at this moment. The entire movement of Jesus found themselves slamming up against Jesus and asking the question, is Jesus really worth my deep foundational allegiance? So we need to investigate this more. We need to investigate what happens when a church or a group of followers of Jesus slam into his hard teachings. And what I want to show you today is that when that happens, on the one hand, it's dangerous. There's peril. Because a lot of people, when they slam up against the hard teachings of Jesus, that'll be the moment when they jettison Jesus. And all of us know people uh, who have done that. But not only is it a point of danger and peril, it is also a, a moment of promise and opportunity. Because some of Jesus' very best gifts are given precisely at that moment when we slam up against his hard sayings and ask the question, is he worth my allegiance? So, let's look at it more closely. We're going to look at both the peril and the opportunity. All right? Let's get into the story. Take a look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, we are parachuting right into the middle of uh, a big conversation, actually a series of conversations between Jesus and his uh, uh, followers. And if you read the, uh, the whole of chapter 6 that comes before this excerpt, you'll notice a rising tension between Jesus and his followers. Now, it's interesting to note that the tension here is not between Jesus and his opponents. The tension here is between Jesus and his followers, people who in some, some sense have said, I want to be on Jesus' team. Now, what explains the tension? Well, uh, Jesus' followers, like you and me today, Jesus' followers had a laundry list of expectations about Jesus and who they thought he should be. The problem was, all through this chapter and all through the Gospels, Jesus just is not playing that game. He just won't play the game. So earlier in the uh, chapter, uh, Jesus feeds thousands of people miraculously, and everybody thinks that that's great. In fact, some of the people thought it was so great that they were ready to make Jesus king. That is to say, they wanted to spark a revolution and have Jesus enthroned in place of Caesar. But Jesus doesn't go for it. He sidesteps the whole thing, and he deeply offends part of his movement that had that political expectation for him. He offended people's politics. 
And then it goes on because the next day Jesus is debriefing this with some of his uh, disciples and he implies that he is greater than Moses. Now, remember, think about the religious context of that time. There was perhaps nothing more offensive that Jesus could say than to imply that he was greater than Moses. So having previously offended the politics of a group of his disciples, he now offends the religion of a bunch of his followers. Can you feel, can anybody, has anybody ever lived in a world where those two things cause tension? Come on. Okay. And then it goes further because in the, in the section just before this, Jesus says this whole thing, we talked about it last week, where you've, if you're going to be my follower, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that just, that just, that just makes the crowd go wild because there, a bunch of them basically say this, Jesus, what are you thinking? You cannot say that stuff out loud. Like when you say stuff like that out loud, it sounds like you're booking a one-way trip on the crazy boat. In fact, I kind of think maybe Jesus, you've booked a one-way ticket on the crazy boat. What are you talking about? That is wildly offensive. Now watch, it was widely offensive, especially in that cultural context. So Jesus has offended the politics of some, the religion of some, and the culture of all of them. Anybody ever lived in a world where that can happen? Well, you're in their shoes. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, rather than apologizing anything, he turns the table on them and he begins to analyze them and their offense. We might even say he begins to deconstruct them. Verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling. Now stop there. Now the word grumbling just sounds like a throwaway word, right? It's not. If you look through the rest of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, look at Exodus, look at uh, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, whenever the word grumbling comes up, it's a big deal. And you know, you know what it means? When the people of God begin to grumble, it's one of the indicators that they're beginning to lose confidence in God. In the Bible, grumbling is the soundtrack of faith when it is decomposing. And Jesus picks right up on it, and he calls them out. Verse 61, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Well, then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, I imagine you could have heard a pin drop there. Probably doesn't impact us in the same way. But do you see the word the Son of Man? That title comes from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures, and it refer refers in the uh, book of Daniel to God's appointed judge that will judge everything at the end of time. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, listen, if you're offended that I fail to meet your political, cultural, religious expectations, then what are you going to do when you see me in charge of everything over the whole of the universe? Now, pause. It seems to me that Jesus ramps up in this whole chapter, every moment he can, he ramps up the level of offense. Did you notice that? He's not very diplomatic, not here. And it seems to me that he's purposely crossing what I want to call the sovereignty line. What do I mean by that? Well, most of us live with an unspoken but deeply held expectation that we are sovereign over our own lives in one way or the other, right? Uh, I'm in charge of me. Um, my opinions are my prerogative, my body, my choice. I am the final arbiter of truth. At least I'm the final arbiter of my truth. Does that make sense? Can I identify with that? 
I want to be sovereign over my life. In fact, in, in a deep way, I feel I have the right to that kind of sovereignty. And why shouldn't I? Well, here's this. Con consider this. If I am deeply committed to my own sovereignty, then I might still sign up for Jesus' team. I might. I might look at Jesus and calculate that Jesus could be a great ally as I pursue my sovereign agenda. I might sign up for Jesus' team a little bit like the United States signs up for the UN. It's great to have some alliances, but I'm not going to surrender my sovereignty. Now go back to the reading. Jesus is pressing against and across their sovereignty line, and he's doing it on purpose. He's saying to his followers, listen, and remember that these are people who have demonstrated or have claimed commitment to him in some way. He's saying, listen, if you're going to be on my team, you need to understand that I do not recognize your sovereignty. Gasp. It's as if Jesus says, I am not your ally, and I'm not your religious advisor. I have come to be your Savior and your Lord. And therefore, it's as if Jesus says, faith in me is going to include surrendering your foundational sovereignty, surrendering your right to be the final arbiter of truth, surrendering your rights over your opinions and your body and your ethics and all of it. And even as I say that out loud, I can imagine people saying, you shouldn't say things like that out loud, right? And do you want to run for the door? Maybe I don't blame you, but just wait a few more minutes, okay? Except it's going to get worse for a second, but anyways. See, listen, when we slam up against the hard teachings of Jesus, those are the moments that are, are, on the one hand, full of peril, danger. But they're also full of promise. They're full of, of peril and promise because in those moments, Jesus is calling our bluff. What I mean by that is that these are the moments when Jesus unveils maybe to ourselves for the first time what's really going on and whether or not we have really surrendered to him. And Jesus shows us that he's not just going to be an ally in what we want to pursue, but rather he is calling us into his agenda rather than just assisting in our own agenda. And when he calls our bluff, it will cause some people, and this is the peril, this is the danger, it will trigger some of us to jettison him. Look at verse 66. This is the first time it happened. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And that's a tragedy. But you must see that it does not surprise Jesus. Look at verse 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and those who would betray him. I think this gives an opportunity to talk about something that's going to be up for some of us, not all of us. Um, a lot of people right now are talking about uh, deconstructing, right? Deconstructing the faith, deconstructing whatever the case may be. You've heard that term, yes? Okay. And the word deconstructing and the conversation can mean a lot of different things. It's very complex. For some, it means that we are seeing corruption and hypocrisy and abuse within the church, and therefore, we need to deconstruct that sin so that we can follow Jesus more authentically. 
more truly and honestly. And the Bible doesn't call that deconstruction. The Bible calls that repentance. And if that's what we mean, then we must embrace it with all that is within us because Jesus calls us to us and Jesus is always deconstructing in that way within the hearts of his people. And he's doing that here. In fact, do you notice in verse 70, do you notice Judas is in the text? Jesus knew that there was corruption even amongst the 12 apostles from the very beginning. And it's important that we understand that there have been corrupt leaders in every generation of the church, and therefore every generation in the church needs to look out for corruption. You need to look out for corruption within me and within other, the other leaders of Emmanuel. And we need to continually be calling us to repentance unto Christ as he presents himself in Scripture. That is a crucial matter. However, this text is pointing to, some, uh, to a different kind of danger. The people in this text are not deconstructing sin or their own sin. They are deconstructing Christ. And Emmanuel, this is a different matter. Because what happens is this, Jesus has crossed their sovereignty line, and therefore they respond and they defend themselves by deconstructing Christ. They didn't want to cede foundational control of their lives. They wanted to try to negotiate the matter, but the reality was that they were rationalizing what was really a rejection of Jesus. And this kind of thing, where you are deconstructing not your sin, but Christ, this is the opposite of faith. And we need to feel the danger and the peril of it. Let me ask it this way. Ask yourself this question. Is Jesus calling my bluff? Is he revealing, is the, is the discomfort I'm experiencing actually Jesus saying, hey, check it out, there are things that we need to deal with. And is my response to push him away or am I willing to surrender? Because if we surrender, there is glorious promise and opportunity. Let me tell you a story. Uh, in the fall of uh, 1998, a thousand years ago, um, I was studying in Israel. I was in the middle of college. And, uh, and while I was there, I slammed up against Jesus. Uh, at the time, postmodernism, nobody knew what it was, but it was really cool. Um, and a bunch of my smartest friends had, were in the middle of jettisoning Jesus. And I could feel why. It was compelling to me at the time. Because at the time, I looked at the Bible and it looked incoherent to me. And morality and Christian ethics sounded like the meta-narrative designed to secure cultural power. And I was afraid that classical Christianity was really just for gullible people. Um, by the same token, just a year or two before that, uh, the pastor of the church that I'd grown up in had been uh, demonstrated to have fallen morally. And so there were a bunch of reasons. I had a whole laundry list of why I teetered on the edge of agnosticism. And as I walked outside the old city wall of Jerusalem, just east of Zion Gate, verse 67 invaded my mind. So Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away as well? And when that verse hit my mind, I knew in the instant I was up against someone bigger than I was. I wasn't just remembering a memory verse. I was up against someone 
And I knew that Jesus in that moment, he wasn't pleading with me. I knew that he didn't need me. I knew that uh, my leaving would not be his crisis. And I also knew that I was looking at someone who was not negotiating with me, nor was he manipulating me. He wasn't anxious, but he was simply setting before me a very strong binary question. Are you in, Jim, or are you out? And right then, verse 68, eclipsed everything in my mind. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And what struck me in that moment, I wasn't even looking in the text, I, I was just walking. And what struck me was that Peter was not saying that he understood everything. He wasn't saying that he was not offended by Jesus' teachings. I expect he was. He was simply saying, Jesus, I don't have anyone that I can trust more than you. Your words impart eternal life. I don't understand them all, but I do know that much that I can trust you and your words more than I can trust myself, and therefore I, speaking for the twelve, cede sovereignty to you. And as I thought about that, I thought then about my father and my brother, both of whom I had watched as their lives had been transformed, and both of whom told me that the explanation was Jesus Christ. And therefore, I knew that I had witnessed Jesus impart words of eternal life. And therefore, in that moment, with none of my questions answered, and with a brain full of confused theology, in that moment, I found myself saying, Jesus, I want to be on your team. I am filled to the brim with questions, and I'm not sure the Bible's a good book, but I want to be on your team. And Emmanuel, I am so grateful these 20-some-odd years later that on that day, Jesus called my bluff, and he summoned me to follow him, and he slammed me up against his hard teachings. And since then, I can say that Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, he has reconstructed me. In many, many ways, and I pray he is only just beginning. Because that is not just my story. Before it was my story, it was Peter's story and the rest of the apostles and the story of the billions of Christians who have come before us. And it's what Jesus says to us today. He's asking us to cede all our sovereignty to him. And why should we do that? I mean, how could you possibly trust Jesus that much? Like, does that sound dangerous to you? Because look at the church. I mean, church leaders all over the place. Goodness, I'm one of them. I see how the sausage is made. I make some of the sausage, for crying out loud. I mean, you, inside the church, it can be an awfully scary thing. And there are shepherds of Christ's flock who have butchered his sheep. And I don't want to soft-pedal this, friends. There were Judases from the beginning, and there are Judases today. And it's important that you see that Jesus considers that a deadly offense. And I am not asking, nor will I ever ask you, to cede sovereignty to merely human church leaders, neither me nor anyone else. But Jesus is asking you to cede sovereignty to him. And why trust him? Well, the simple reason in our text is that his words give eternal life and that there is nobody greater to be trusted than him. 
And if you're in that place where you are thinking, shall I uh, give my allegiance to Jesus and shall I do so in a continued way? And shall I cede sovereignty to Jesus? Wow, can I trust him? If that's where you're at, then let me just say this. You have got, please, to immerse yourself in his words. Go take the Gospel of John and read it 20 times. Read it until it's no longer as familiar to you. Read it till you begin to feel yourself slammed up against the hard sayings of Jesus. Because the closer you are to the sayings of Jesus, as you close that proximity and get right up next to him, what you will find is you will find the words of one who is more to be trusted than anyone else. I defy you to find somebody more trustworthy than Jesus. You will find the words of one who the words that quiver with the very love that created the universe. You will find one whose actions back up his words because you will find as you look at his words, you will find through his words and his deeds, you will see him ascending to where he was before, but you will realize that he ascended in a very peculiar way. He ascended upon a cross. He was lifted up upon a cross. And if you have been hurt by the church, or if you're afraid of those who have been hurt, if you're afraid of being hurt within the church, then look at Jesus Christ, for he was victimized by the religious leaders of his day long before today was. And you can look at him and you can find a fellow victim, but you can also find the greatest advocate. Don't trust shepherds who butcher the sheep, but you can trust a shepherd who is butchered for the sake of his sheep. And there as you look at him, you will find that his death was not just an act of cowardice and victimization. You will also find that it is the epicenter of rescue. That you will find that in the, the death of Jesus Christ, that is how God reaches down into the hell of this world and redeems it. You will find the pathway, not simply to deconstruction, but to reconstruction. And if today you find yourself saying, but I don't know how, I can't trust, I don't know how I can trust Jesus, even as I kind of wish that I could, if that's where you're at, this text has great words for you. Do you see how Jesus says it is the spirit that gives life? The special gift to the one who is struggling with doubt and struggling to trust, the special gift that Jesus gives you today is his own Holy Spirit. God the Father pouring out his spirit into your heart, giving you an ability to trust that you cannot generate yourself. And therefore, if that's where you're at, immerse yourself in the words of Jesus and then ask him for help. Ask him for the power of his Holy Spirit to trust him. And there, my friends, you will find, I can say it from my own experience, but better I can say it based upon the word of God and the experience of countless billions over the last 2,000 years, you will find that the Holy Spirit will reconstruct you. He will build you back up, and you will find as the years pass that Jesus becomes more trustworthy with time and not less. And it is from that vantage point, being reconstructed through the power of the Holy Spirit, immersed in the words of Jesus, that we will become gifts in our own world to call the church to a deeper repentance and a greater reformation, which is precisely where Jesus wants to take us. Just like St. Peter, here he says, Your words have the word, you have the words of eternal life. But a little bit later on, he found that he had to be reconstructed because it ended up that he participated in the very hypocrisies that he was so offended by. 
And yet by the power of the Holy Spirit through the words of Jesus, he was reconstructed. And based upon his faith, the Lord built his church. And that's where he wants to bring us back to today. That's where he wants to bring Emmanuel. And that's where he wants to take us in the wider church in this season. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.